just a, an example of what you might find in the University of Lethbridge Library. Um, <clears throat> so here's a, an unexpected find in the stacks of the University of Lethbridge Library. And I'm talking about you know, using the Internet. We still have these libraries. And ultimately, when you cite your sources, uh, by citing a literary source, anybody can go to that source. It has, it, it, it has a permanency. Uh, that, that the internet doesn't have. But here is a, here is a, a book written in, uh, 1936, uh, published in London. And this author is trying to look at something called World Politics, 1918 to uh, 1936. So Chris, I, you know, I, I look at this and I say, okay, this, this fellow is trying to, essentially do globalization studies uh, in his time. You know, this is this, we may be using the word in a new, in a new way. It's, it's a very old uh, uh, process to try to think about how the world is, is constructed. Um, so he's looking at, you know, problems in world politics, uh, world unity and world antagonism, the general crisis of imperialism, uh, He's looking at international capitalism, uh, the war of the monopolist blocks and uh, restrictions of production and trade, uh, the currency war, Sterling. Just to give you, he's looking at the League of Nations, attempts at world organization. Of course, the League of Nations uh, failed, although the League of Nations was um, an idea that came from the U.S. President Woodrow Wilson in when the League of Nations finally got going, this was the first time, well, let's have a, a world parliament. Let's try to uh, resolve our differences not through violence, not through conquest, uh, not through the rule of force, might is right, but through um, negotiation, through due process, through legislation. That was the, that was the concept. The United States didn't join... Um, the uh, League of Nations, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and others thought, well, this has a danger of superseding the sovereignty of the United States. Why should the United States accept any higher sovereign entity other than itself? Um, so this was uh, the past. I'm worried about the, I'm worried about the University of Lethbridge's library funding. That wasn't the newest book, was it? <laughs> uh, no, it's not the newest book, but it... it, it and, and I say that, that you think I'm joking. It's not as if we get the new books and then they make all the old ones obsolete. No, that's true. And I, and I say that in jest, but as a way to segue into our, our discussion of truth. And, and I think that, as you just mentioned, and I was hoping we would go there just for a brief interlude, that just because there are newer sources doesn't mean that the old ones are obsolete or don't have a lot of value still. So again, we're talking about truth and, and notions and conceptualizations of what embodies uh, truth and how do we achieve it or how do we get close to it. And, and I, I wanted to use that as both, hopefully a mildly humorous way to introduce that as a bit of a discussion point. Yeah. I, I noticed, for instance, in the library um, discussions, uh, I'll be at some, you know, faculty council meeting and a library, library representative will come and say, now we're purchasing some collection of digital books. 
we can get you know two hundred thousand books for a hundred thousand dollars, and so that works out to fifty cents a book, okay, which is a great deal. Uh, and so we all nod our head and say that's a good thing to do. Um, but what is a library nowadays? I mean, in a certain sense, where, when are we going to have the discussion about the strategy of how do you construct a library, conceive of a library in this day and age? Uh, and, and perhaps more importantly, who will have access to it? Access, I think, is one of the bigger questions. Even, even as we use this digital media uh, to hopefully create a lively discussion and, and to share these kind of things interinstitutionally, I still think that the internet, as much as it's a great equalizer, is also, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great divider of those who have and those who have not. And who has access to knowledge, who can produce it, who can read it, who can see it, who's it produced for, to what end. These are all questions that I'd love to hear your students discuss and maybe hear your thoughts, but perhaps I'm jumping the gun on your planned lesson, which is something we'll have to work out as we collaborate and team teach. But. No, I think I think this is a hugely important subject. You know, when we talk about uh, the internet, for instance, and uh, uh, the access we have, uh, we need to remind ourselves that uh, the internet is up to maybe a billion people uh, who have access to it. Um, the world population is uh, seven billion or so. So there's a you know the, the largest part of humanity have nowhere near access to uh, computers. And, and the, language, the largest part of humanity have never made a phone call. Uh, it's only and, and the language of the internet. That content, when you say a million people have access, I would say, I would venture, and I'm guessing, and perhaps you know the answer, but I'd say 80% of the internet or, or more is in English. Yeah. And, and as we know, uh, language is also a window to truth. Language is a, both a barrier and a window to truth and how you perceive the very nature of reality. Again, which ties into our subject tonight. And I, I think, I don't know, do any of the students feel like pushing a button? I'd love to see you, maybe. As much as I like how Tony looks. Dang. I pushed it a while ago. I was, we're sort of getting sidetracked, but um, using whoever wrote this book that you have on the wall here, and it's Michael and Gantius. Mm -hmm. uh, an American Empire, get used to it. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, as a primary source to history, that's one man's perception. So that can't, getting back to truth again, that can't be everybody's truth. It's, it's perception. That's what we were talking about at the beginning of the class. Whereas, like biology and chemistry and the rest of the sciences, they have a method and they have, you know, controlled externalities. We don't have the same sort of systems for the social sciences and globalization and what is, you know, history. I just, I think it's problematic and that's where I think I'm, we're getting stuck or I'm getting stuck anyway. And on the side note, there's this globalization index and they try and put it into numbers. They'll have, you know, these five categories and they'll say, you know, they're trying to find out which countries are globalized and they can put it in numbers they can show. So you can say, well, that's not true, but they can go back to this index and show that the numbers they went out and found that are hard, hard numbers that yes it is true I don't know what do you think about that does that make sense or do you hear I'm going with that um, anybody just a comment like based on truth isn't it just based on the best information we have available like for example uh, two examples the earth used to be flat 
you know, that was the universal truth back in the day, right? And my other example is, uh, weren't, like, eggs used to be bad for you to eat. Simple example, right? So now they're good for you. Like, and this is just based on the current scientific information that we have. So with more information, we might get closer to something of a truth, but really... So one notion you want there is that truth is temporal. Yeah. There's a, a time-dependent nature to truth. And so when you adopt an absolute view, you have to be very careful because it's not timeless. Yeah, and another thing was, um, like the USA, we were talking about the USA, uh, somebody mentioned in there just being like one of the best democracies in the world, when essentially they're one of the worst because they have like the lowest voter turnout and stuff like that, so like in my opinion anyway. So you have to look at things like that as well, like just based on what he was saying about perception. Well, when we, uh, when we talk about identifying truth, we're living in an era of public relations. We're living in an era of perceptions management. We're living in an era of propaganda. Like where, where does the word propaganda come from? It comes from a religious concept, propagating the faith, propagation of the faith. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, Nazi Germany, one of their really powerful achievements if you can call it an achievement, was uh, spin doctoring, was uh, presenting a depiction of reality that mobilized people so that you could uh, militarize the society and uh, get people uh, enthused about your state policy and believing in it. Uh, Joseph Goebbels was the propaganda minister. And uh, propaganda doesn't necessarily mean you're lying. Propaganda doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're, you're um, concocting facts. Um, you can be using facts, but you, you use them in a certain way. Uh, I would say if you had to say what's the biggest business in the world right now, I would say it would be information management, spin doctoring. You know, advertising. Uh, so, um, you know, there are so many industrial associations with their agendas, so many political associations with their agendas. Um, and uh, so, in this day and age, uh, the identification of truth is, uh, it's a, you know, there, there is so much spin going on. Does everybody know what I mean when I say spin? Yeah, please. Yeah, uh, quick point, Tony. Um, back on the subject of truth, um, just wondering if yourself and um, the uh, the other person sitting in here can comment on um, Mark Spooner. Oh, Mark Spooner. Spooner. If Tony okay. and Mark can comment on um, on the dangers of relativism. Now, I guess when I'm thinking about truth, I'm thinking there's there's a few different ways to look at it. We could talk about opinion. I mean, I could have an opinion that I I like pizza. And, and someone might have a different opinion. They, they, they dislike pizza, and we can both be correct at the same time. We can respect each other's opinions. But it's a different question to say something like, the pizza doesn't exist, or what reasons do I have to believe this pizza exists? I mean, if we have a rational framework, we're, we're talking about relating evidence to propositions. I can see the pizza, I can smell it, well, maybe I can even taste the pizza. And I, I, you can collect, collect this evidence to believe that this pizza exists. So there's this rational belief, right? But, but you wouldn't be able to say that pizza is good. 
Like you wouldn't say that. For you, even if you like it, you wouldn't, you couldn't make that claim that it's an inherent quality of pizza. That's, that's correct. That, that's correct. That, that, that's correct. I, I couldn't say of pizza itself, it's good infinitely and for all people. Uh, that, that, that would be like, you know, something that's true universally at all times for every person. That's, that's kind of kind of a bit of a stretch. I guess when I'm thinking about the dangers of relativism, I'm thinking of people that do things like deny that the Holocaust happened. I mean, they take something that is just horrible and horrendous, and they just they take an irrational view that something like this even happened, and then they, they, they just label it as relativism, and everybody can be true at the same time. I mean, it's, it's, I think people have gone from respecting each other's views and saying, like, you know, I respect your belief, you respect mine, to saying we can all be true at the same time. I can believe the Holocaust happened, someone else can believe it didn't happen, and we can both be correct. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Well, this is a, this is a, surely a huge danger in our in our time that uh, whoever has the most effective thin doctrine prevails, you know, wins the election, sells the products, uh, but it's still thin doctrine, uh, and it, it does get to this point where it's like, well, what is true doesn't really matter anymore. It's you know, the, the decisions will be made according to what people fi find is most persuasive or, or feel best, you know, what they feel best about. Um, and and oh, after the break, and we'll take a break shortly, uh, we'll kind of get into, uh, um, I think the one of the most interesting things going on on the Internet right now is attached to this 9-11 truth movement. So there they are, they're, they're calling it a truth movement. And uh, basically implying that the whole um, question of whether or not it's possible in our society anymore to actually identify what is true from what is spin, what is uh, you know politically expedient uh, things to do or say, uh, and you know well, what what more important place could there be than a university? Where, you know, at some point you've got to say, okay, we've got a number of opinions, but something here is, is true. And, so, and, and once we identify something that's true, then all those things that are inconsistent with that are And so, you know, wrong. Uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, you know, the, the history is, um, replete with many, many individuals like Galileo who say, this is true. No, no, the world isn't the center of the, of the universe. Actually, it's, there's a solar system, and the sun is the center of the universe. And, uh, you know, many of those uh, individuals end up uh, being persecuted. Uh, Can I jump oh, in for a second? Do we have a few minutes before break, or, or not? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, one, I'd like to say when we're considering notions of truth, I, I have two things. One, I just want to talk about truth as a concept. There's no ultimate foundation on which to base knowledge claims. They're all human constructions. So, so you're going to have to buy into one or another. And how you do that is up to you and, and what you feel comfortable with, for one. So, so they're all an act of faith in one way or another, whether you, you choose a scientific method, whether you choose religion, whether you choose... Uh, introspection or any other ways of accessing what we seem to be true, they're all an act of faith. And you can even think of, uh, in science, you have what Thomas Kuhn talks, paradigms. And they become 
largely agreed upon truths, which are temporal in nature. And, and that, so that's one. Now back to the uh, Nazi party and the Holocaust, which is a touchy subject, and I think it's a good one that we address in a university setting. I think I'm someone who really believes in social justice issues, and I always wonder, am I on the right track? Am I going towards some better thing? Is it better? And I always think that if you can add more diverse voices to the chorus of what's already being said, then you know you're on the right track. So, so in that way, I think to the um, introspective, young, reflective students that ask that question, I think I would, I would ask you, are you collecting more and more voices of diverse uh, or uh, diverse uh, origin? And if you are, then in the collective of those voices, you may come with a social, uh, you may kind of arrive at a socially agreed upon truth uh, that hovers around truth but never is truth. But I put that out there for you. Mark, I think I heard you say in the final analysis, it's all faith. And I, you know, I would argue that faith is a concept that leads away from reason. I mean, the concept of faith is, uh, look, your reason might tell you this, your logic might tell you this, but you've got to have faith. And I saw, you know, a great dialogue between an Indian man and Lahontan in the six, late 1600s in New France. It was a very, it was a bestseller in Europe. Dialogue avec un sauvage de bon sens. And uh, this Indian and Lahontan are um, arguing the respective merits of their civilization. And the Indian is saying, look, you, you guys are you're so, so superstitious. Look at, look at the way, look at how you treat your priests. And, and, uh, and I always hear this word faith, this Indian is telling Lahontan. You know, the priest is saying, well, it's, you've got to take it on faith. He said, you know, the greatest gift the Creator gave us, that's kind of irony here, is our reason. And so when we hear that word faith, it makes us just choke because it's violating our great gift from the Creator. It's an ironic kind of twist. Um, so Science is a religion, though. Science and the scientific method, to me, is a, is a religion. You're buying into that system that way of achieving truth as you understand it to be. And, and as you're talking about that, I think of our great court system when people's lives are at stake and you ask, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and not, nothing but the truth? And I, I know of one native person who testified, well, I don't know, I can only tell you what I know. I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, the courts after, uh, after the break here. Um, if I can go to the, Cal, um, if I can go to the document camera. Uh, faith. Uh, so you, you raise that concept. Uh, so relativism. Remind me your name. Uh, it's Mark. 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 I think you were basically saying, you know, it, relativism. If, if it goes so far, it can become nihilism. There is, you know, well, you say the Holocaust didn't happen. I think it happened. We'll cut the difference. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Uh, you know, that at some point you say, no, you know, that that is unacceptable. It's absolutely true that it happened. And we can't allow society to, you know, to to, uh, to let that, that element of doubt enter into it. I can't hear the commentary. Yeah, you've got to press the... Uh... I, 
same time. Sorry? Can you hear? Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that it's socially acceptable now for everybody to be true. Uh, that, that that everybody's beliefs can be true at the same time. If someone you know says the Holocaust happened, another person denies it, and we we I think we want to believe that everybody's true at the same time. And we're confusing respecting people's beliefs with accepting them as true. Yeah, and I would say, you know, that would be a kind of liberal position that you, you just get used to accepting there's lots of versions of truth and you're never going to work out which one is uh, the prevalent one and so just kind of live with it. And on some level... But I don't know, does that prevent you from speaking out against what you feel is wrong? I, I you know, Mark, you're... you're, uh, you're uh, I don't know, to, to say, well, science is just a kind of religion, it's just a kind of thing on faith. I mean, no, if, if there is too much CO2 in the atmosphere, I mean, people are going to die, organisms are going to die. There's, you know, there's absolute things that happen in, the, in, in, in our environment that uh, have consequences. And, uh, but I'm know, not saying that's not true. I'm not saying... <laughs> I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'll, I'll just get, get to the break here. I, I think yeah. it's time we... But Tell me, let me say that I've got the longest view here. Right. Yeah. True. Truth and nihilism are both extreme imaginary limits. Forget them. Get approximate <laughs> as close as you can to the defendable regularity. There's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as absolute nihilism. We're all trying to approximate reality and stability. And I'm telling you, in my life, nearly, every, the, uh, nearly all of the truths have changed, and they will in your lives. Yeah. Is that true, Mark? I completely agree with you. <laughs> I decided to be on the same panel as you, sir. i got a phrase for it. It can go to the document camera. Um, Cal. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I, I came up with the phrase rational relativism. You know, the, I think is basically what you're saying. Like, you know, we've got, we've got to embrace relativism on some level. Uh, and, but, you know, let's try to be rational and, and not... Uh, just, just this, uh, I th you know, this, this primary source here, and what we can learn about history from primary sources, and we try to get as close as possible to primary sources. So uh, this is uh, Lloyd George, who was uh, at uh, representing Great Britain at the uh, Treaty of uh, Versailles in 1919, uh, kind of labor uh, representative. He was actually a liberal. He wasn't as extreme as labor. Um, but here is uh, the author, uh, R. Palme Dutt, quoting uh, Lloyd George in a speech he gave in the House of Commons in 1934. And I you know, quoted this recently in the work I'm, I'm uh, doing, uh, Earth into Property. And I found it kind of a surprising uh, thing coming from Lloyd George, who is a liberal. He said, you know, in 1934, in a very short time, perhaps in a year or two, the conservative elements in this country will be looking to Germany as the bulwark against communism in Europe. So this is, uh, uh, you know, Hitler is now firmly in control. He's the chancellor in Germany. And here is the prime minister 
uh, or a former prime minister giving his view of uh, the situation. So Germany is the bulwark against communism in Europe. She is planted right in the center of Europe. And if her defense breaks down against the communists, only two or three years ago, a very distinguished German statesman said to me, I'm not afraid of Nazism, but of communism. And if Germany is seized by the communists, Europe will follow because the German uh, could make a better job of it than any other country. Do not let us be in a hurry to condemn Germany. We shall be welcoming Germany as our friend. And this is, this is a, a, to me, a rather surprising um, view of things. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, obviously there was a very big constituency who was very worried that the Soviet system, Soviet means a, a collective of workers, would spread, that the Soviet Union was not the final uh, end of it, that the objective was global, global system a worldwide system, that if Germany went communist, that would be a huge experiment uh, to, to the future of capitalism. So there was a very large constituency who was very favorable to the position, the fascist position, of fighting communism in the heart of Europe. So there's a, there's a primary source. When we come back, we'll start to look at how the courts deal with this question of what is true, how the courts deal with, say, culture, and how um, culture is to affect the way the laws are interpreted. And I would like to uh, take a little time surfing around the 9-11 truth movement. Uh, there's about 50 documentary films online about what went on in 9-11. And uh, it's, it's an incredible body of work and uh, you know, very, very interesting in terms of what's going on on the Internet. So let's take a break and I uh, hope you can stay there, Mark. If you can't, uh, I know you've got... I might go to for a fee. Oh, uh, yeah, I was thinking Is something... Is that all right? I think, yeah. How long is break? Uh, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes. That'll give me enough time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Amazing way to conduct the class, isn't it great? <laughs> Did you think? I think. Knowing the Wow. Yeah. You can see everything. Yeah. Is it working out, Tony, with me over there? Yes. Who are you talking to? Is Tony still in the classroom? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it looks great. Tony, I'm asking before I go. Is it is it working out? Like you can hear me and and it's it's useful. Absolutely, and uh, thanks for your, uh, you know, your very incisive contributions. They're not interrupting the flow of your classroom too much? What's that? They're not interrupting the flow of your classroom too much. Well, we're just trying to make the flow happen, so, and it's flowing, I think it's flowing. Good. Yeah. All right. I have that question about the online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is the uh, this is the book here. Have you, you've got it, eh? Yeah, I bought it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I I started here in 1990 in Native Studies, and it's largely a work of Native Studies. Yeah, but it goes like all the way. 
Tony, are you there? Is anyone there? Existential angst. Tony. Dr. Hall, can you hear me? Tony. Hello. Hey, Tony. Dr. Hall. Paging Dr. Anthony Hall. Tony. You're still able to hear us, eh? You can hear me? Oh, yeah. I had you muted there for a little bit, but we're, we're back on now. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, was it because I said something controversial? <laughs> <laughs> Is there an open censorship going on at the University of Lethbridge? <laughs> that's, when, that's when Tony wants us to turn you up. <laughs> I demand that my truth be heard. <laughs> He should be right back. I don't know if he was, he was here. It looks like he's ready to go. But. I want to see. I was hoping to, um, if I do this, people will see the cover, right? You can see that? Can you see that book? It's a little difficult to see. Oh, there it is. There it is. I don't have a document camera. If I do, I don't know how it works. Um, when he comes, I'd like to ask him that I'd like to read a little passage from this. What about this website? Can you see it? Yes. Because I've been uh, unwittingly advertising Coca-Cola, and to counteract that, I think that people should get the other version of the truth over here. Killercoke.org. <laughs> Shaking up truth and propaganda. It's interesting to note that you can go to uh, Coca-Cola has bought every other combination but .org. So if you go to killercoke.net or some of the other accommodations, you actually get a Coke site. But obviously killercoke.org is not run by Coca-Cola. I, I invite everyone in the class who can hear me to uh, go to this website. Maybe we could even uh, make Sony go to it. Boy, he really had the key. <laughs> I guess, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> so how is everyone's turn going? Who can, uh, who wants to press the button on their microphone and talk to me? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Good. Good. Can you see that? That's perfect. Uh, how is your turn going, fellow? That Phrygian student. I'll think silence was not too good. Yeah? Yeah. It's, uh, 
You enjoying the format of this course? So no, it's all right. It's a little bit all over the place right now, but we'll work something out. I think that uh, in this, this will maybe be a course that you'll remember later on as you go through. Uh, or maybe not. Well, one sec. What's happening? Oh, are we on? Oh. Yeah. Huh? Marker. Nothing, nothing, Tony. Okay. I feel very energetic all of a sudden. I don't know. In what sense? Uh, with the enlightenment of ideas. With, yeah. with, I'm filled with ideas, Tony. I, I just need to communicate them. Now it's, uh, yeah, now I guess the bandwidth was uh, yeah. narrowed there, but now you're okay. Now you're clear. I am? Yeah. I have two things. One, I, I think I presented to your students at uh, killerquotes.org because I've been unwittingly advertising this um, terrible product. So I live in a campus where... They have an exclusivity deal. I think you're a Pepsi school. Uh, no, you're a Coca-Cola school? I noticed a Starbucks down on the sixth level, too. We're Starbucks school. Well, I invite your students uh, to, you're talking about 9-11, uh, truth. Killercoke.org would be a good site to go to. Okay. And then while we're talking about truth and the court system, I'd like to read just a small passage out of this book by J.R. Miller. You probably know it. Uh, Reflections on Native Newcomer Relations. J.R. Miller? That's yeah. Is he? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, J.R. Miller. You know, I don't know. You've got to get your uh, document camera in shape at that end. One step at a time with the Luddite, yeah. my friend. Okay. While you're looking for that, let me uh, just uh, yeah. go to uh, the docu camera here. Um, I mentioned the, the Enlightenment as a, a subject here, and this is the, the book, uh, uh, Timelines of World History. So here is a, a very uh, little... Neat little definition. Uh, the Enlightenment, innovations in agriculture disrupted traditional relationship between peasantry and the land. Many left the countryside to work in the city, swelling an increasingly uh, politicized urban population. This would be the enclosure movement we talked about last week. Um, people being put off the land for different reasons, a variety of reasons. Uh, essentially, the countryside is being transformed into private property, fences are being put up, and instead of uh, peasant farming, you have uh, sheep, sheep or uh, different kinds of uh, increasingly modern uh, agricultural techniques. This is one of the main factors behind radical shifts in political thought and practice during the period. Uh, the 18th century enlightened writers or philosophers, such as Voltaire and Diderot, appealed to human reason to challenge traditional assumptions about the church, state, 
monarchy, education, and social institutions. Man is born free, but is everywhere in chains, wrote Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his social contract, 1762, in which he sought to show how a democratic society could work. Of course, there was no democratic societies uh, in Europe uh, in, in, in Rousseau's lifetime. And so eventually there would be the French Revolution uh, to overthrow the old regime in uh, Rousseau's country. Some ideas stem from the work of the English philosopher John Locke, who has said that all men are equal and that the authority of government comes only from the consent of the government. And here's a picture of uh, Voltaire. (coughs) Uh, Voltaire's Encyclopedia was illustrated with fine engravings showing all sorts of craftsmen at work, such as the instrument makers in the illustration above. It was a massive work consisting of 28 volumes. So the very concept of recording all knowledge as it was known, uh, this was uh, Diderot's vision, this was the vision behind the production of the first encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedia, and uh, so this uh, 18th century is a, a time of uh, you know, great uh, strife, great uh, intellectual um, uh, bigger and fervor and, and contention, and it, it, it culminates in the American Revolution, where the old regime is declared to be um, uh, illegal, uh, illicit, uh, corrupt, um, dictatorial, um, and the old regime is thrown over. Of course, you know we, we have an interesting position in this country because this country comes out of the other side of the American Revolution the Tory conservative side. And uh, I think if you look at the country that emerged from that side of that uh, split in 1776, you could say, well, actually it proved to not be all that tyrannical. Uh, you know, compromise and consensus? Canada was going to compromise and consensus? Uh, well... Not ignoring the native view. Well, and one of the things that happened in uh, the American Revolution is that the Indians tended to side against the rebels, and certainly in the War of 1812, it was Indians who defended what was called Canada. Uh, So, you know, Canada is uh, the country that that was defended by Indian nations in the War of 1812. Now, why why is that? Well, we, we could talk about that history. And we, we will talk a little bit about that history. Uh, then comes the uh, French Revolution in, seven, in 1789, which begins with very idealistic principles, liberté, égalité, fraternité. But then when the old regime is thrown over, then the differences between the different factions, the different revolutionary factions, uh, it very quickly turns into a uh, very chaotic situation where the regime holding power simply eliminates their opponents through the guillotine. And eventually, of course, uh, Napoleon emerges as a military strongman to take control of the chaotic situation. But then he tries, ironically, to export the French Revolution through force of arms. Uh, so... Uh, 
the French Revolution is often given as a, a very important inspiration to the Russian Revolution, where the Tsarist regime is, is thrown over. It's interesting when you look at this history and you say, you know, all these movements would be, by today's terms, uh, characterized as terrorists. I mean, what was the, uh, how did the United States come into being? The United States came into being by a group of British Empire subjects taking up arms to assert uh, their position vis-a-vis -vis what they saw to be a corrupt dictatorial regime, uh, the regime of King George III. I mean, if they had not been successful, they would be in jail as terrorists. Um, the French Revolution, obviously, which which is one of the most influential events in the creation of what they call the West, um, you know that, that was a, that was a violent overthrow of the existing regime. Certainly, the Russian Revolution and the establishment of the Soviet Union. This is a major uh, marker in history. So do we now say that history is at an end and anybody who uh, opposes the regime in power assertively, aggressively, even if it, even if it involves uh, violence of some sort, that that is uh, no longer acceptable? History is now at sort of at an end. The end of history, Francis Schreiber wrote in 1989, just as the Berlin Wall was coming down. Uh, or, or or not. Um, so, as we talk about primary sources, and we talk about how we orient ourselves to all of this history that we're looking at, um, the reality that we are uh, individuals who come from, you know, different backgrounds. Some people in the room here may have been born in southern Alberta or northern Alberta. Some people in the room here may be born in uh, Singapore or China. Um, there is a, a, a tremendous range of experience probably represented just in, in this room. So how do we make sense of our personal history uh, and in, in trying to figure out the, the overall history of, of the world? Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, delve a little bit into uh, my own history, my background. Um, I want to uh, put it at a, a focus here on Philip Sand's book. Mark, this is, uh, this is one of the books that uh, the students here will be uh, okay. book reviewing. It's called uh, Lawless World. It's a brand new book. came out of Britain. Uh, it's looking at the history of international law, especially since uh, the Atlantic Charter in 1941, when Churchill met Roosevelt in Placenta Bay, uh, Newfoundland, and came up with this very short document, uh, which is taken as the basis of the United Nations. The United Nations opposed the Axis near the end of the war when it appeared that the United States, Britain, that the United Nations, Canada, about 50 countries by that point, uh, were going to prevail. The plan started to be being made for the organization we now know as the United Nations. And 
and the United Nations started to develop laws for all humanity. At least that was that that's been the theory. So they start with a genocide convention, for instance. They start with uh, uh, universal declaration of human rights. So here's a very interesting uh, expression of the idea that, okay, there are some absolutes. We're going to say that there are some absolutes in terms of uh, human rights. And we could see the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a, an outgrowth of, you know, the French Revolution, uh, different, different kinds of expression. But now we're, we're little by little getting to uh, a, an idea of a law for all humanity. So um, this concept of the law and, you know, what is the law and who makes the law and how do you interpret laws, uh, this has uh, been a subject that I've really had a, you know, a lot of chance to partake in. Uh, uh, this, is a, this is a case heard in the Superior Court of Justice. Uh, this decision here is written by uh, uh, Justice uh, uh, oh, uh, Stephen uh, McNeil. And uh, anyway, he is uh, in this judgment dealing with uh, whether or not I will be recognized as an expert witness in a case involving a criminal charge against... Uh, Fournier, Menard, and Bergeron. Uh, these are the principal figures in, a, in an organi organization called the League of Indian Nations of North America. And uh, so uh, the argument was made that uh, this involved uh, constitutional issues. A lawyer called Mike, Michael Swinwood tried to persuade the judge that there were issues involved in this case that went beyond, um, you know, the details of, of, of what, how these particular individuals would be involved and, and had to do with larger issues. So uh, on uh, January 28, 2004, he came up with this decision saying that there should be uh, funding to develop the constitutional arguments, and uh, he said, uh, in my view, the constitutional questions to be raised at the proposed hearing by a way of defense to the criminal charges are clearly novel and complex. Counsel for the applicants has submitted that Dr. Hall will give evidence through the prism of Section 35 Aboriginal and Treaty Rights are to be given a positive effect and not viewed in a manner which negates and denies the rights. <coughs> The issues raised in the notice of constitutional question are of sufficient merit that it would be contrary to the interest of justice for the opportunity to pursue these questions and these issues in the case to be forfeited. So um, that's fairly strong language. So this is, this is a, a legal ruling. So I arrived in North Bay, and, uh, and so then the debate was between what they call the Crown, which is the government, the Attorney General of Ontario, um, argued that, you know, Hall shouldn't be recognized as an expert in, in this matter, that these matters were small and that they, they had significance only to, to this particular issue. 
And so then we uh, we hashed it out for two and a half days. If uh, if you know, what was the nature of Dr. Hall's uh, uh, education, publications, uh, credentials, and could he give uh, evidence, uh, expert evidence? So uh, this case in two, 2005, he's uh, the judge is saying. Uh, Yes, I will be recognized as an expert. And what this led to was then 20 days in uh, a court proceeding in North Bay, Ontario. Uh, and uh, this was quite uh, quite an experience, quite an intense experience. I can stand here for two hours and give a lecture, but, you know, it's something to go in like eight hours a day. <laughs> And you speak, and then you go in the next day, and then you go in the next day. And, of course, it was uh, quite a responsibility, but also you're creating a record and bringing in lots of evidence and lots of testimony. Uh, I could say that uh, pretty well every point I tried to raise, the Crown, the government representing the, the uh, lawyer representing the Attorney General would stand up and say, Your Honor, this is irrelevant. This has nothing to do with the criminal charge against uh, Fournier, Bergeron, and Menard. And then we would hash it out, and you know, very frequently he would say, "No, no, I will, we'll continue. I, I want to hear this." And uh, so, so that was uh, that was the uh, the context of this. So I'm I'm trying to uh, uh, put this in the context of our discussion about how we identify truth. And of course, courts are very interesting. I mean, in a sense, this is this is the place in our society where we say, "Well, somebody's got to decide." You know, we've got this person arguing this, this person arguing that. Government says this person is a criminal, violated the law. They say they're not. Uh, somebody's got to decide. You know, so we we have a long tradition producing these these courts of law. These courts of law basically are in the business of using very uh, intricate procedures and rules with the aim of identifying what is true and what is not true. Is the party guilty or not guilty? If they're guilty, for what reasons? If they're not guilty, what are the reasons? And in this case, what is involved is, you know, we have since 1982 a document in Canada it calls itself the Supreme Law of Canada. Anything that is inconsistent with the Supreme Law of Canada, any legislation, any government policy, any police way of acting, um, if, if, if the judge deems that this is inconsistent with the Constitution Act 1982, a big part of which is called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, then it's of no force. So the argument was, what, about whether or not I would be qualified is uh, at, at behind this was the question, does this case involve constitutional questions? Does this case involve uh, Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982? Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 says that the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. You might write, I might consider that something I could uh, 
at some point um, ask you about Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. So uh, check out what the Constitution Act 1982 is. It'll, it'll, it'll be very easy to find. So, uh, so anyway, this is this is a, uh, a court uh, a court ruling. If we can go to the document camera, uh, and uh, the judge pretty well gives me my instructions. Dr. Hall, in the process of giving his evidence, is not to generalize upon the broad sweep of history. He's not to make vague enunciations or pronouncements regarding Section 35 constitutional rights. He's not to engage in advocacy, but rather to express independently formed opinions that he genuinely holds. He's not to function... Uh, he's not to usurp the function of the court expressing legal opinions. Uh, in giving his evidence, he should state the facts or assumptions upon which his evidence is based. So I understand it, and then he goes on basically to say what I will. You know, he's saying he shouldn't do this, he shouldn't do that, but this is what I should do. As I understand his evidence to date, including that which is contained in the affidavit, um, he will be dealing with the sphere of constitutional relations between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples in a general period 1492 to date. In this regard, he will not be he he will be referring to the Royal Proclamation of 1763, as well as other significant historical or uh, constitutional events, both prior to following the Constitution Act 1867. Everybody knows that's what they call the British North America Act, the Constitution Act 1867, the British North America Act. It creates a confederation of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. It divides up the United Province of Canada into two units called Ontario and Quebec, formerly Upper Canada, uh, uh, Ontario used to be called Upper Canada. Lower Canada is Quebec. Why Upper and Lower? Well, the, the the water flows downhill. The water flows from up, up at Lake Superior, through the Great Lakes, down to the to the lower part of the country uh, in the days when the Commercial Empire of the St. Lawrence, a famous book by Donald Creighton called The Commercial Empire of the St. Lawrence. Uh, <coughs> In, the, in those days, they talked about Upper Canada and Lower Canada. So, Constitution Act 1867. He will be confining his evidence to the greatest extent possible to the national implications of Canada's recognition and affirmation of Section 35 rights. His opinion will touch upon or deal with the uh, genesis of treaty federalism in the written and unwritten Constitution of British Imperial Canada. Uh, up uh, his opinion will touch upon and otherwise deal with the Indian Act and its various inceptions, and to the nearest degree possible, the administration and political representation that has or may have grown up around it, as well as such be the case, the extent or degree to which uh, LENA, LENA is the League of Indian Nations of North America, or other organizations may differ from the intent of the Indian Act uh, or may be uh, developed. In any case, here's, uh, and I'll just read the final one. In dealing with the issue of treaty federalism, he will make reference to Section 109 of the Constitution Act and its issues touching upon Queen Anne's order and council dated March 4th, 1704. So anyway, that's, uh, uh, that is a venue to look at history and, and to figure out, you know, does this history bear upon the way that we need to interpret law. 
Uh, in the uh, in his summing up here, he says, I've carefully reviewed Dr. Hall's curriculum vitae, and I've considered the evidence uh, which he gave during the qualification process. I'm satisfied by that as by uh, the background of education, publications, and publications edited, book reviews, and presentations to government. He's eminently qualified and that he possesses sufficient skill, knowledge, and experience in the field and the area relating to. So then this is kind of like a license that the court is giving me, uh, I guess in potentially other cases as well as this case, relating to the history and politics of constitutional relations between the Aboriginal peoples and the Crown in Canada and beyond. So... Uh, so that's my um, uh, encounter uh, with the courts. I also did a case in Portland, Oregon, a, an extradition case where a veteran of the Battle of Gustafson Lake in British Columbia in 1995, there was an Indian war in British Columbia involving the Canadian Army, the U.S., uh, the, the, the Canadian um, RCMP, fired 70,000 rounds into an Indian camp. In the camp, they were calling into question the land title in British Columbia because there are uh, no treaties in, in, in uh, most of British Columbia. They're negotiating treaties. So in any case, uh, Pitawanaquit was one of those charged with a criminal offense at Gustafson Lake. Pitawanaquit left Canada before his parole was up. He went to Portland, Oregon. Canada contacted the authorities in Portland, Oregon and said, uh, send us back Pitawanaquit. Uh, he's a criminal. He's broken his parole. So the United States is a sovereign country. Canada doesn't have jurisdiction in the United States. We have an extradition treaty with the United States. The United States then looks at the matter and, and, uh, and uh, says, well, should, do we give this individual up to to Canadian jurisdiction. Uh, trial was held. On our side of the, the issue, we put forward the political offenses exception clause. We said in this Indian war, there were very real I issues at stake. There is a kind of civil war taking place in Canada over this issue of Indian, uh, Indians and land types. And it's very intense in British Columbia, especially. And uh, the judge... Um, anyway, I did a 50-page report over a Labor Day weekend, and that was the expert report for the defense's side, for Pitawanaquit's side. So in the case USA versus Pitawanaquit, the judge actually agreed with our position that this individual had been criminalized for political reasons in a kind of civil war situation. So to this day, Pitawanaquit has some kind of asylum in, uh, in uh, the United States. So that's, those are three, three cases I've done so far. And we've won two of them. Uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's very fascinating to get in, into the, you know, we beat the U.S. government. I mean, Pitawanaquit won, and, and, um, um, and, you know, the judge looked at uh, Sri Lanka and, you know, Palestine and Ireland, and uh, because, of course, this issue of, of extradition and, and uh, who can claim this kind of protection. You know, it, it's, it's a very big issue around the world. So, um, 
so, you know, the, the laws of evidence and how you go about in court uh, developing uh, a thesis, an argument, and then how you go about documenting it and proving it. Um, and, you know, it's an, and it's, it's an adversarial system. Um, how do you go about, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with an individual who has no resources. The state has unlimited resources. Is there ways to, uh, to balance that out? So um, I'm giving something of a personal um, history here. I think it's fair that uh, you have a sense of where I'm coming from. And I think as you develop as academics, as apprentice academics, as you move through the system and you try to develop uh, credibility, as you try to uh, get people to take you seriously, uh, and of course, you know, getting a BA is helpful to, in, in that respect. Getting a law degree is helpful in that respect. Getting publications is helpful in that, in that respect. So as you develop your own uh, personality in the world of ideas, in the world of uh, uh, trying to develop evidence and trying to develop positions, uh, um, you know, what, what, will, what will be the rules and how will you deal with your own uh, background and how will you understand your own history and how will you... Um, either project forward things you've learned from your parents, from your community, from your church, um, things that may be very dear and near to your heart, or to what extent will you um, see some of the things that you've been imparted, you know, by your elders, by your parents, by your community. Well, what, to what extent will you try to, uh, will you decide that, you know, this just no longer applies, this is, this is some kind of antiquated tradition that I can no longer adhere to. And, you know, I'm dealing with the rest of my life and, and there's some things I'm going to leave behind in, in, in my heritage. And, and, you know, we have free will. And, and I think in this day and age of globalization, you know, we're, we're subject to so many influences and all this access to the Bank Samoro uh, situation or the the situation of uh, the native Hawaiians, uh, the situation of Rwandan people or blacks in South Africa or on and on. I mean, we, we can find, we're drawn to things very surprisingly. And we can, uh, you know, we, for unexplained reasons sometimes we identify with somebody else's struggle. Uh, certainly, um, uh, I know at some point, uh, the reality of what Indian people in North America face, I mean, this, this, this sort of disparities of power, uh, you know, it was quite striking to me. And, it, and it, some, for some reason, it just attracted me um, into uh, looking at it. Uh, evidence, the first evidence in the uh, court case, exhibit number one, is uh, my book, The American Empire in the Fourth World. And uh, I haven't uh, required you to look at it, but obviously if you're interested, you know, to have, if you have some interest in, well, where is he coming from? What's, what's behind this? Uh, this might give you some uh, insights into that. 
Uh, Naomi Klein, some of you might have heard, uh, she, she uh, has done uh, web links in this course, and uh, you know, we tend to work together. This uh, cover uh, won an award in uh, the United States for uh, academic book cover. And uh, this is uh, Apache or um, Blackhawk helicopters. Now, Blackhawk was actually a person who was actually allied with the British in the War of 1812. Um, and uh, he fought the United States. He maintained a resistance which reached some kind of peak in the uh, late 1830s. He was uh, eventually picked up by an Indian group who were with the United States. He was arrested, incarcerated. Then they took him on a tour of eastern cities, as was sometimes done, to show Indian people on the frontier, look how powerful we are, you know, face it. You don't have a chance. Look at, look at what's coming. Um, much to the surprise of those who organized the event, uh, Black Hawk became a kind of celebrity and American people were just fascinated with him. As they were certainly fascinated with uh, um, Geronimo, the Apache. Um, was Geronimo a terrorist? I mean, was uh, Geronimo uh, from his hideaway in the uh, Sierra Madres, uh, from his hideaway in, in uh, Mexico, uh, would go out and do raids in, uh, in, in, in the 1880s? And uh, they were generally recognized as the, 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 the greatest guerrilla fighters in history, essentially. Uh, you know, would come down very quickly, do these raids. Uh, eventually, it took, you know, thousands of soldiers to apprehend uh, Geronimo. He kept escaping again and again. Interestingly, the U.S. government hired other Apaches to be their scouts. And that seems to me to be a big part of empire building. I mean, you, you get the, the people you're trying to get take over, you get some of them in your system, and then they give you advice. Well, this is where they hide. This is, this is how they get their food, you know. Uh, so, you know, we, we get a very big uh, uh, element of the government doing this intelligence, trying to find out what people are thinking, what they're doing. So, uh, anyway, when... Uh, Geronimo was arrested, what laws had he broken? I mean, generally speaking, the idea that you're allowed to defend yourself in your own territory. If somebody comes into your territory, somebody comes into your home, tries to apprehend, take away your wealth, and there's a general understanding you can defend yourself. <clears throat> so, uh, had Geronimo broken Domestic criminal code of the United States. Was he an international prisoner? Um, and uh, the United States could never quite say. So he wasn't really given the protections and due process of domestic law or international law. So I took this to be a kind of a prelude to what's going on in Guantanamo, what was just starting to go on in Guantanamo Bay, where the U.S. government took the position that the people in Guantanamo Bay are illegal combatants. They're not prisoners of war. They're not to have access to the U.S. system or the international system. So um, anyway, I wrote the preface 
shortly after the invasion of um, Iraq. So um, anyway, I, I, uh, when I when I talk about primary sources, we go to the pictures here. Uh, <clears throat> I find photographs to be you know, very telling, very powerful primary sources. This is uh, my grandmother. I think that would be her. And I know she was a twin. And she grew up in uh, Toronto. And uh, I think this picture gives a you know, good idea that she was from the right side of the tracks, if I could, could put it that way. Uh, <clears throat> so here she is. I guess she would be about my age here. So this is, this is, this is her. Uh, with her daughter, my mother, and that's, uh, that's me. This is in uh, Rosedale in uh, Toronto. And uh, my grandfather had a seat on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Anyway, uh, uh, as uh, I go through this, um, <clears throat> I was thinking I would uh, share this with now, uh, that's me. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> that's Art Hindle. I used to see him in quite a few movies. And Gary Tresseter, he was uh, in uh, dental college. And <laughs> that's quite some time ago. Uh, you, you know, single-breasted or double-breasted, $25. Uh, <clears throat> This was a Sears Roebuck catalog, and uh, uh, so I, I'm not sure if this was the first trip or the second trip to Jamaica. And of course, that was pretty exciting. In those, you know, in 20 years old, somebody pays your way to go to Jamaica. Of course, you stay in an incredibly luxurious, you know, estate with, you know, exotic foods and fruits and, you know, people making your bed and waiting on your every move when you eat. And, but I, I do remember being quite shocked when you would leave the little tourist enclave into Jamaica, finding, you know, pretty extreme poverty. People living, you know, obviously dealing with a lot of violence in, in their own, uh, in their own society. Uh, and, uh, well, there was there was also the Rastafarians, you know, the uh, like Bob Marley had not yet uh, become prominent, but that music was certainly there, and I heard it in in Jamaica. But this was, you know, my kind of shock introduction to the reality that the world is pretty polarized in terms of, you know, the rich and the poor. And uh, really, if you think about, you know, the little enclave in Jamaica, and then you go a few a few miles away from it, and you're in just a totally different situation. Really, that's the world we live in. Like, these little enclaves that we're, you know, we're with our schools, with our internet, with, you know, all the food that's available and the, the work prospects and the pay scales and everything. I mean, this is not typical of the experience of the vast majority of people on the planet. And uh, anyway, that that was uh, that stage of of life. Tony, yeah, I was wondering uh, if I could give voluntary homework to your students. <laughs> I'd like to you to answer, not the students. No, um, what 
As you sit in your classrooms and you wonder what it is you're doing at university, I'd really like you to think for a deep reflective moment on that and to think about what it is you're doing there. And I'd like to challenge you to think about notions of critical thinking and engagement and empowerment and think about your role in working with or against different systems that you agree with or disagree with. Because you're not just there to learn the standard literacies, I would argue. You are there to learn engagement, to be able to have the posture to be able to stand up against ideas you don't believe in. And I think oftentimes the university system will encourage you to take a submissive posture. But if you don't agree with something, I think it's okay to stand up and say so. Not right now when I'm talking, but um, in general. I think that you should really think about what you're doing in university at the moment, right now. That's it. I know when uh, we can go, when I was doing this kind of work, um, and uh, I, I did, uh, I, I might have done this a thousand times. I mean, I was in many TV commercials and a uh, few movies. I was in a movie with Peter Fonda. I was in Toronto. And there was, you know, lots of opportunities. But it was, uh, you know, little by little, it, it made me think about imagery and the way that uh, images are created. And, you know, time and time again, I would find myself, you know, I'm the happy face of consumption, right? So they set up a situation and you know it's all false. It's all constructed. And then, you know, you give that final smile and, and convey a sense that, you know, consuming whatever it is, is going to give you great happiness. And it, it started to play in my conscience. I said, you know, I'm actually providing the kind of happy face of some uh, situation that I know is a lie, that I know is false. And in a way, too, I mean, if you're the model, you're, you have a, a talent agent, the photographer, you know, hires the talent agent, to hire you, the advertising agent hires the photographer, you know, then the people in the company are trying to sell things. It's like you're, you know, you're at the very end of the feeding chain of salesmen selling stuff to salesmen, selling stuff to salesmen, and that's how this society works. But in, in any case, when I, I speak about, uh, you know, spin doctoring, advertising, public relations, I feel this kind of personally um, because I've been a shuckster for, you know, consumerism. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the reality that so much of, of, the, of the world we're living in, the mental world we're living in, is, is constructed for us to, to create a very uh, explicit set of actions on our part, you know, basically to, to consume. And uh, and how do you get people to consume? Uh, you play on their hopes or you play on their fears. And, and they that playing they on fears is very, very powerful, very, very effective. And we're seeing we're living in an era now. I mean, the war on terror is all about exploiting the emotion of fear uh, to allow for the centralization of power and uh, allow for a certain kind of um, actions 
And uh, it's, a, it's much, much harder to develop a politics of hope than a politics of fear. And, uh, you know, we're just sinking down now so, so far into the fear category and, and giving up uh, the hope category um, so, so, uh, so dramatically. Um, uh, primary documents. Um, so here is, uh, here's, uh, just quickly, um, this is the book signing. So, you know, writing that book is a big deal. It's a big deal in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, the project is continuing. Uh, this is my graduate student. He wrote a, uh, an MA thesis on, uh, the Battle of Gustafson Lake, which I talked about, which eventually I would participate in, in this court proceeding. Um, out of that, uh, I got invited to give a conference paper at, uh, Tokyo, at the UN University in Tokyo. I gave a paper called, uh, The Colonial Genesis of the War on Terror. Anyway, when you go to the uh, Great Wall, um, there's, you know, tourists. They'll take your picture, uh, people who serve as tourists. And uh, the Great Wall, of course, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, who are they trying to keep out? Who were they imagining that they were keeping out? Well, they were keeping out the barbarians. Eh? And I'm thinking to myself, well, and I guess my people at the time that wall was built were just about as barbaric as as the Chinese could imagine anyone to be. So, you know, this, this wall is actually directed to keep out uh, the barbarians, who is my people, you know. And, and so now things have changed. I'm inside the wall, you know, and now we've got to deal with a whole new reality. Uh, yes, sir. Um, just something interesting I actually just read tonight. Uh, the Great Wall was also meant to keep people in. That was another big thing. They were having a lot of their... Uh, I guess you'd say like they're knowledge workers, people like that, migrating out. So it, uh, that also kind of stopped them from leaving. The Great Wall uh, is uh, to keep people out, to keep people in. The, the Berlin Wall, which is the symbol of, the, war, of uh, the Cold War, I mean, that was basically built to keep people in, to keep the East Germans in. Now I would say the wall in Palestine, Israel, Israel-Palestine, this is the symbol of the new division. It's almost like when humanity sort of starts to get together, it's almost like elite panic. Humanity is going to transcend these barriers. Uh, it's going to disrupt you know, systems of authority and systems of power. So now we've got another, yet another wall. And that wall surely um, poses a question for us. It just implicitly says, well, what side of the wall are you on? Well, it, there's another notion to ponder there, and, and it's one when you talked about fear, and that's creating the sense of other. The wall helps you create a sense of other, as does when you talked about the war in Iraq or any other war that's dealt with about terrorism or terrorists. It's, it's, you create a sense of other, and then you're easily able to exploit this notion. The other. Yeah, and then, of course, once well, you once you embrace the idea, well, we're all human beings on a single globe, you know, is there any other kind of war than a civil war, for instance? Isn't every war a civil war? 
I mean, can there be war between two foreign powers, or isn't, isn't it all our own wars? Um, okay, I'll just finish off this. We're obviously not going to get uh, into the great 9-11 uh, truth movement debate, but you can uh, go to that site. We didn't get to Bang's uh, Morrow, but you can go and look. And, and, and the truth movement isn't a site. It's many, many sites, many documentaries. So uh, um, it'd be interesting. Uh, actually, I could imagine, uh, uh, I don't know if any, anybody's at the point they could see themselves coming up here computer here and point out things that you've found in your research on, on the 9-11 truth movement. But I'll just finish out this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, little, uh, maybe it's a self-indulgence, but... Uh, you know, you, what is your own primary source? Where, where do you draw your, um, your insights from? I mean, you can't really differentiate your intellect from your, your experience. That is a primary, that is your most primary source. So, anyway, this is, this is the July, about July the 25th. That's my father. We're in the, uh, that's Cuba. That's Jose Marti, it's like the revolutionary square, like Fidel Castro lives right behind here. I just actually dropped off my book at the National Library of Cuba. My dad is 84. I probably did more talking with my dad in that week than in the last 30 years. But uh, just to round this out, my dad is actually an immigrant. And... Uh, this is something my dad gave to me, uh, presented to Brother A.H. Hall. Um, so that's my grandfather, that's my father's father, by something called the uh, Officers and Members of the Kregay Temperance. Uh, temperance, of course, is uh, the movement against alcohol, uh, the movement for uh, no alcohol, very important uh, social movement. Uh, and L.O.L., strikes me as it uh, must be uh, Loyalist Orange. It's the Orange Lodge. It's the Orange Lodge. So um, this is... Uh, and uh, so this is the uh, King James Version. And it's, uh, it's the Protestant version of the Bible. And as you may be aware, you know, Ireland has a, to this day, a very harsh... Um, acrimony between the Roman Catholics who see themselves as the indigenous Irish, the older society, and the Protestants who go back to Cromwell, the Protestants of England invaded Ireland and brought with them their Protestant religion. So Northern Ireland is uh, um, part of the United Kingdom, but in 1921, the south of Ireland uh, became a republic of its own an independent republic. So in any case, uh, this sort of rounds it out. That, that, uh, uh, so this is, this is my little uh, uh, encounter with my own uh, history. Uh, so as, as we try to figure out you know, the world and all the, all the peoples and all the cultures and all the identities and what's true for us and what's true for them and is there any final truth that all of us can agree on? Can we come to gripped with something like the concept of universal human rights? Or are we going to be relativists and say, well, 
we'll just we'll just let a lot of things slide. Um, we won't uh, we won't come to grips with uh, some universal principles. And of course, if we're if we're going to have a, a law that applies in a global basis, we're going to have to come to some sort of consensus about universal principles. Like 1948, uh, there was a consensus. Uh, about genocide. Genocide is wrong. They invented a new term in the Second World War. Uh, the United States didn't sign the Genocide Convention until uh, 1989. Uh, so not until the Cold War was over. Um, so the relationship of the United States to this international law, uh, it's very you know paradoxical in a lot of ways because the UN was really created out of the United States. The United States is very powerful on these universal concepts. I mean, McDonald definitely sort of boiled down human nature and human needs to some very basic formula and then is able to apply it again and again. So, oh, yeah, we're done. Okay. And, okay, thanks, uh, thanks, Mark. I can look up there, Mark, Mark, Mark. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, so we'll we'll pick up the uh, things we didn't look at, and we'll proceed as seems appropriate. Tony, did you want to phone my office or anything, or, or how long is this on for? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give you a call in uh, 20 minutes. How about at home then? Uh, call me at home. Okay. When I'll get when I get home, I'll call you at home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Cool. Yeah. Answer. <laughs> you got to be home to do that. Yeah.